So a couple years ago, I was in a meeting where we were evaluating a ministry event. And in what I do for a living, if you want to say it like that, I do a lot of events. And we do a lot of meetings where we look back at how events went. Well, I was at a church, obviously, so we wanted people who didn't know Jesus to come to this event. Well, we did the event, and the people didn't come. At least the people that we wanted to come didn't come to this event. And so those of us who are ministry leaders were sitting around evaluating, why was it? And one of the guys chimed up, and he said, I know what we forgot. And I said, what was it? He said, we forgot Witham. I was like, Witham? Like, is that somebody's name? Where, where's that guy from? Witham. What are we talking about? Witham. He said, yeah, Witham, W-I-I-F-M. We forgot to ask the question, what's in it for me? Because the reality is that every single one of us asks and uses that question on a daily basis. Whether going to a new restaurant, whether it's accepting a new job, whether it is entering into a relationship with a person, all of us to some degree ask the question, what's in it for me? If we're honest, that's a good question. We also recognize that if that's the only question asked, that it could lead to entitlement. It can be a very selfish question if all we ever ask is what's in it for me, never looking out for the needs of others. But we wanna go into that question for the next three weeks in this series we've simply called What's In It For Me. And we're doing this because we want to look at our church's mission, why we say we exist, the things that are important to us as a church family, and interact with the natural question that every single one of you has this morning, and that is, what's in it for me? I think this applies to those of you who have been at Johnson Ferry for a long time, but it certainly applies to those of you who are here maybe either for the first time or maybe you are new to our church. We've had a lot of new faces uh, join the Johnson Ferry family in the last year or so. And so it's important that we constantly talk about why we do the things that we do as a church. And so we're looking at this in this series, What's In It For Me. So let's start right off the top here with our mission statement. A lot of you will know this. We say it a lot or you've heard it alluded to several different times but I hope that you will commit it to memory if you don't already have it committed to memory. And I'll have it here on the screen for you. And I would love for us to all say together our mission statement as a church. You probably know it by now, but let's all say it together. What is it? Why do we exist? Let's say it. We exist to help people find truth, belonging, and purpose in Jesus. Every single word matters. We exist to help people find, so it implies that people haven't yet found that, we wanna help people who haven't found these things to find them. Find what? Find truth, belonging, purpose. But those are only finally found in one person, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're gonna look at these things over the next three weeks. Truth, belonging, and purpose. Today we're gonna to talk about truth. I read a study recently that was entitled The High Cost of Fake News. Now that has become a familiar phrase, fake news. Our former president used it all the time. Others talk about it now, that there are fake news. And you may not know this, but there are actually people around the world, not just in politics, but when it comes to the stock market, when it comes to healthcare, a number of different just arenas of life that deliberately create content to deceive. And a study was done to look at what is the actual cost of us believing in the lies that these people are intentionally creating. And, and this particular study said that every single year, we lose $78 billion around the globe because of fake news. 
And the article talked about the high cost of believing in something that is a lie. When we talk about the truth of Jesus, we're talking about something far more valuable than dollars. And we have to recognize that there is a high cost to pay if we don't know the truth and walk in the truth that is found in Jesus. Today we're talking about finding truth. A.W. Tozer is a pastor that maybe you know his name. Uh, He died a number of years ago. There are some pastors that when they talk, they comfort you, not A.W. Tozer. He's a guy who punches you in the nose in Jesus' name, all right? And so he's always good for a a great quote to wake you up a little bit. And so in one particular book, he, he wrote this. Now, he was talking about a number of years ago, but this is so true today. He said, a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. He's saying there's a a divide that happens between accepting Christ as our savior but not as our Lord. And then he went on to say this, He said, salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. In other words, to say Jesus is your savior implies that he is your Lord. To say that he is your Lord implies you understand him to be your savior. Biblically speaking, there is not a choice there. It is a package deal. And if you believe there's a choice that you can accept him as savior, but not Lord, then you are what one person by the name of Dallas Willard, he called it vampire Christianity, which is a way of saying, you know, Jesus, I like a little of your blood, but I'm gonna wait to become the person you want me to be in heaven. It sounds good, and I'll use your blood now, but I'm gonna postpone all that to one final day when I'm with you in heaven, and I'll let you know when I'm ready to grow. Can you imagine Jesus finding that approach to be acceptable? I couldn't. And yet, if we look at the landscape of Christians today, we see that there are many examples, even in our own lives, where we say one thing and do quite another. Why is it that so many, not all, but why is it that so many Christians struggle to live in the truth of Jesus? Not just to know it, but but to live in it. Why, why is it that we struggle with that? I'm sure there are a lot of different reasons. A couple of reasons I thought about were, number one, we, we look at just the abysmal rates of biblical literacy, meaning that a lot of Christians don't spend a lot of time in the scriptures, and that has a profound effect. Another reason that we probably don't live out the truth of Jesus is because of the general skepticism of our age. We, we live in an age where we question everything, we try to tear down everything. That, that's the water that we swim in. Words like deconstructionism are very popular in the church today because we feel like we need to break down, deconstruct what has been constructed. And that is the air that we breathe. That's the culture that we live in. Another reason why we struggle with this is because a lot of us choose to live in defeat, meaning that we struggle with sin so long, we don't even think that victory is possible. Maybe we think that's only for heaven one day, but I can't live in victory now. Maybe the the biggest reason that we struggle 
to live in the truth of Jesus is because we simply don't know how. We know that we should, but we simply don't know how. And we wanna look at that today. Not just finding truth, but how do you, how do you walk in the truth? I mentioned his name earlier, Dallas Willard. He's got so much good things to say when it comes to discipleship and the process of disciple making, and that's something that's very important to us as a church family, to be making disciples. And I love this definition of discipleship that he gives, the process of, of discipling one. And he says this about discipleship. He says, discipleship is becoming the kind of person who does easily and routinely what Jesus said. I love that definition. What is discipleship? It's helping someone to, to become the kind of person who does two key words, easily and routinely what Jesus said. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's impossible because a lot of the things that Jesus said to do are really hard to do. There's no way I could ever do them easily and routinely. And that may be part of the problem. See, when it comes to truth, it's one thing to have the truth, but Jesus wants you, no matter where you are in life, to be walking in the truth. And I, and I thought about just this analogy. I think about the game of golf. All right, a lot of y'all play golf. Uh, I have golf clubs, so that helps, all right? Now, when it comes to golf, it's, it's one thing to, to know what you should be doing with this club. I mean, we've probably all been there before. You, maybe you're invited to play some charity tournament. You haven't played golf in a year, and so you do what we all do. Like the day before, you're on YouTube, right, looking up videos, reminding yourself about swing patterns and pace and all these things. What do you do with your hands? And, and the thing is, you, you can learn all that stuff about where to put your hands and, and grip and how, you know, hips and all this stuff. But the reality is that you will never learn to hit that golf ball the way you should until you get out there and you swing and you swing and you swing. And ideally, someone who's watching you says, oh, you need to look at your hip and do this. Oh, you need to make sure you do this with your knee. Oh, you need to you know, make sure you get this pain. You need somebody to help watch you do it again and again and again. And the key is, moving it from just head knowledge to muscle memory, to where you can do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is true in golf, it's true with the tennis swing, it's true with lifting weights, it's true with so many different athletic endeavors of our life, and the same is true with discipleship. It is one thing to know what Jesus said, to know what he expects us to do, but he actually wants us to put it in practice and it's the doing of that thing over and over and over and over again that helps us to learn to do the things that Jesus said easily and routinely. Walking in the truth. To look at this idea today, we're gonna spend time in the next three weeks in an amazing passage of scripture. It's in John chapter 17. And I don't know if, I know we have lots of people here who, who are new to the Bible. You haven't read much of the Bible. We also have folks here who have read the Bible for a long time. So I don't know if you've ever interacted with John 17, but this is an amazing text of scripture. It's given different titles. Some people call it the high priestly prayer. Some people call it Jesus' prayer of consecration. This is a prayer that Jesus is going to pray with his disciples right before he is betrayed and arrested. So the context is very important. This is the night before he is arrested and of course will go to the cross to bear the sins of the world on the cross in his own body. 
And we have this glimpse into the heart of Jesus in John 17, like nowhere else in scripture. John Knox was this famous reformer in Scotland. He loved John 17. He, he called John 17 the holy of holies in the scriptures. It's like, you remember the temple where you go from one layer into this deeper layer, into this deeper layer, into this special holy place. He's saying John 17 is this look at the heart of Jesus Christ himself with this amazing prayer. And so what we're gonna do today and in the next two weeks, looking at truth, belonging, and purpose, is to look at this amazing text and to see the heart of Jesus, to hear what he says, and to see the prayers that he prays for his disciples and he even prays for us. In fact, I'll go ahead and give you a little spoiler alert. You are in this passage. We'll have to wait a couple weeks for you to see that, but you are in this passage. Let's do this. John 17, it's worth reading the whole thing for the sake of time. I'm only gonna read three or four verses, but we're gonna try our best to make reference to every verse in the next uh, three weeks. But if you would, let's stand together, and I wanna read for you verses six through eight in John chapter 17, John 17, six to eight. This is what he says, praying for his disciples, verse six. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have followed your word. Now they have come to know that everything which you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Father, as we look into this amazing prayer of Jesus, and we think about the need for us to not only have, but to walk in the truth, God, would you lead us by your spirit today? Would you teach us through your word and help us to not only know what Jesus said, but to do what he has called us to do. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys can have a seat. Today we wanna look at three aspects of walking in the truth. And as always, I put these in your listening guide, so I'd encourage you to be taking notes as we look at these three aspects, and maybe just as a way to help you, um, I think about them as the ABCs. So we have one that's A, B, and then, and then C, you'll see that. But I think they're found in what the disciples did as they related to Jesus, and these help us to think about how we not just have the truth, but how do we walk in the truth? If we say our mission is to help people find truth in Jesus, it means that we aim for all of us to be walking in this truth. How do we do that? The first part I want you to see today is this. Number one, we need to accept Jesus's word as God's word. Accept Jesus's word, his word, as God's word. Jesus here, of course, had a special relationship with his disciples. And in this upper room, he is with his 12 disciples. Now, what we'll know from scripture is that one of them will prove to be a fake, uh, Judas, of course, who would turn his back on Jesus. But the other 11 certainly were genuine in their commitment, though imperfectly, to Jesus. 
And I, I love that when Jesus is praying for these men in verse six, he says, I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. I love that Jesus sees his disciples as a love gift from the Father. God, you gave me these men. These are the men that you appointed to be my disciples. And and I think if I could just extrapolate that onto us today, it means that if we are a disciple of Jesus, that we too are a love gift from the Father to Jesus. Did you know that? You are a love gift from the Father to Jesus. I heard a pastor by the name of Skip Heitzig say this when he was talking about this passage. He said, if you think about it, you are a gift. You know, if you came up to someone and, and they looked at you and said, what do you think you are, some gift to the world? You say, no, but I know I'm a gift to Jesus. I'm God's gift to Jesus. That's who I am. Because I am a love gift to the Son from the Father. And one of the things that Jesus commends his disciples on in verse seven is he says that, he says, now they have come to know that everything which you have given me is from you. And specifically in verse eight, he says, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them. So that's what we're looking at. That if we're gonna, we're gonna walk in the truth, it first of all means that we understand that when Jesus speaks, the words that he is speaking are words from the Father himself. And we accept them as God's word. Now, if you've been around the Bible, if you've read anything about the disciples, you're thinking, well, hold on, because, I mean, honestly, these are guys who certainly weren't perfect. In fact, we can think of a lot of ways in which they haven't completely accepted Jesus' words. They struggle with Jesus' words. There's things that he taught about all the time they struggle with. In fact, almost to the very last hour, Jesus had to convince them again and again why he had to die, why he had to be raised from, from death. Yet Jesus gives them the benefit of the doubt. And Jesus has so much grace towards us, way more than we give ourselves many times. And the comparison he's making is between his disciples and the rest of the world. His disciples accepted that Jesus's words were the word of God. That's why they dropped their nets and they followed him. And this is different than a lot of the other religious leaders of Jesus' day that would not accept Jesus' word as being God's word. When you read the scriptures and the gospels, you see in particular that there are these groups like uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious leaders. And the tragic irony is that these were men and women of the scriptures, of the Bible, if you, were, if you, you know, would. And yet they miss Jesus. Unlike the disciples, they would not accept the words of Jesus as being God's word. Jesus one time challenged them in, in John chapter five. He says this to these religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. And Jesus was constantly challenging people to see that his word was God's word. And that whatever he says is what God is saying. Because if Jesus, of course, is equating himself to God, he is God. But many people had a problem with that. They didn't mind Jesus as uh, a great moral teacher, a great philosopher of life, but, but God. In fact, there's this one occasion when Jesus 
is, is talking about the Passover. And he makes these really odd references to his own body. He says things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which just sounds kind of creepy, right? Um, you don't have any part with the Father. Now, to those of Jewish descent, and that's largely who Jesus ministered to in his time on earth, who, who saw that as blasphemous, they turned away. There were a lot of people who loved to follow Jesus as long as he was doing miracles and as long as he was putting on a show and as long as they were getting fed. And the same is true today. People love you know, what Jesus can give them, but at some point you have to come to, to make a decision. Am I following the one with the words of life? And when tons of people start to go away from Jesus, then he turns to his disciples and he asks this question, John chapter six, I'll, I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that statement of faith on the part of the disciples. Where else will we go, Jesus? You are the one with the words of life. You know, that's why we are to spend time in the scriptures today. You'll hear me a lot of times encourage you as a church family to be reading the Bible. I'm gonna do that again today. You need to be reading the scriptures for yourself, spending time with the Lord. Sometimes I'll say it even like this. We challenge you to spend unhurried time with Jesus in his word. And we need to be careful that we never treat the Bible as simply just some manual for life. It always bothers me when someone says, the Bible's a manual for life. You ever gotten excited about reading a manual? Oh man, I can't wait to get home this afternoon to look in the glove compartment box in my car and just, I just wanna read about the car, just the manual. No, no one likes to read a manual. The Bible's not just some manual of do's and don'ts, how this thing works. But what you have in front of you, you have the words of life. You have God giving you his word so you can spend time with him and know him and enjoy him. And we accept Jesus' word as God's word. In your connect groups this week, I gave you a question I would love for you guys to just talk about with one another and be honest. And this is a question, you find it on your notes this week. It says, what word best describes your time and the word over the last month and why? If you had to pick a word to describe your time in the Bible, in the scriptures over the last month, what word would you choose to describe your time in the Bible and why? I'd love for you guys to discuss this, that this week. So the disciples, they received Jesus' word as God's word. So that's the A, accepting Jesus' word. B, all right, number two is this. Believe in Jesus as God in the flesh. Believe in Jesus as God in the flesh. It's one thing to accept his word, but more importantly, God wants us to believe that Jesus is in fact God. He is God in the flesh. Again, as we said a minute ago, it's easy to want Jesus to be a great prophet or a moral teacher or an influencer or a celebrity of some kind, but at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't wanna be any of those things. He wants to be God. He wants to be God in your life. You recognizing that he is God 
in the flesh. If you look at verse eight in this prayer in John 17, he not only says, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them. And then this, and they truly understand that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. In other words, the disciples fully understood that this is no mere man, but this is the God man. He is the one that existed before time. Earlier in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, verses one through five. Again, a surreal prayer, but in it we see Jesus' own understanding of his mission And this applies to how the disciples saw him as well. Look at verse one through five of John 17. Jesus spoke these things and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, here's the prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. That's his first prayer. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And he goes on to talk about it. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind so that to whom all you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Isn't that an interesting way of talking about eternal life? That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. So much to unpack there. But what Jesus is essentially saying is that his mission on the earth is coming to a close. The hour is a way of talking about his death, his exaltation, his resurrection, his eventual glorification to be back with the Father again. This hour is now here. Jesus is about to be arrested. Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus is about to go through all he's gonna go through. The hour is here. And so he's praying, glorify the Son. Now you might go, what do you mean by glorify the Son? In other words, give me back the glory I had before I came to the earth and got in a human suit for 33 years. Remember Philippians 2, that beautiful hymn that says, not being in the form of God, he he emptied himself. In other words, he self-limited his godness when he came on the earth in the form of a human being. Now is the time, however, when Jesus is going back to his rightful place to go and live as one of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reclaiming the full glory and power that he had before his incarnation. And he's saying, I have completed your work. I have told them, and I'm about to secure eternal life for them. And you go, what's eternal life? I love how he describes it here. Eternal life is to know him. That's eternal life. Eternal life is not just living forever. Eternal life is having a true intimate knowledge of the everlasting one, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is praying that they would understand this and he knows that they do. And so these disciples understand that that this one is no mere, mere influencer or teacher. This Jesus is God, he's God. 
and they understand the glory that he had and the glory that he's once again gonna have when he ascends to be with the Father. They understand that, and that's what true faith is. True faith is understanding the truth of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Faith, when we think about faith, faith does not save us. Did you know that? Sometimes you hear people today talk about we need faith, we need more faith. Faith does not save us. Faith in Christ saves us. Amen? It's not the degree of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. To to understand who Jesus is is to understand the gospel, the good news, who he is, what he did, what he's doing, what he will do, and the full glory that the Son has. And that's Jesus' desire that every single person here at Johnson Ferry this morning would, would walk in the truth and that you would find that the truth of your life is rooted in Jesus Christ. So we, we, we plea with you as much as a human can to put your faith in Christ, to believe in Jesus. Jesus said it like this in John 3, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him, there it is, the one who has faith in him, believes in him, is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is why telling people about Jesus is so important and urgent. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna make a big emphasis on you telling people about Jesus in your neighborhoods, at your schools, in your workplaces. People who die without Jesus spend eternity in hell without God. Do we feel the weight of that? Faith in Jesus saves so it all goes back to the beginning. Okay, we, we, we have truth in Jesus that he is God, that his words are of God. But then the question is, how do you, how do you put it into practice, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to understand the gospel, but, but what, what do I do with it? How do, how do I swing it? How do I use it in life? Which gets to the C, or is it C? I don't know which way you are looking at the camera. How's that work? Is that a C? I don't know that is, whatever. C. Jesus wants us to conform to his vision for the good life. Conform. So accept, believe, and the C stands for conform. Conform to Jesus' vision for the good life. In verse six of this prayer, he not only says that they have received your word, but I love the end of verse six, at least in the New American uh, translation, it says, and they have followed your word. They have followed your word. Your your translation may use the word obedience. And and that's a good Bible word, to obey. Now, a lot of us don't like, there's something off-putting about the word obey. I don't think we need to apologize for it. Jesus talked about obedience all the time. But but obedience sounds like something your dog does, right? 
or obedience sounds like just following the rules. It's, it's a great word, but it comes with a lot of kind of modern baggage because of how we use the word obedience. But the word for follow your word here is an interesting word in the Greek, which is language of the New Testament. It's the word tereo, and it means to guard or to protect. When Jesus says they have followed your word, he's saying that these men, these disciples, they have followed, they have protected, they have guarded your word. In other words, they have conformed their life to protect the thing that Jesus has given to them. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to guard his truth and to live it out, to protect it in our life. And I think very practically, it means that Jesus wants us to put into practice the truth that he gives to us. Now, you can look at a lot of different examples of this. And so I picked one random example, but this is one of dozens that you could pick out. And I I think a good place to start, although all the scriptures is, is God's word. I love to read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. It's filled with so many practical admonitions that Jesus gives to us that he wants us to do, this truth he wants us to live in. And so here, here's one example of how do you put this into practice. I think about Matthew 5 when Jesus talks about loving your enemy. Like right now, can you think about an enemy in your life? Just limited to one. All right, think about an enemy in your life. And maybe enemy sounds too strong, but someone that maybe you have you know, a beef with, right? Someone who has something against you. Someone that you just, you know, when they come down the hall, you, you go the other way, right? Someone, when you see them coming, you pretend like you have a phone call. Like, these are the type of people I'm talking about in your life, all right? Some of them may have your last name, in fact, all right? So think about an enemy, and you think, that person drives me nuts. I just want to avoid that person. But notice what Jesus says. Here's one example of many, Matthew 5. He says, you have heard the law that it says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Even in those few verses, we have just practical admonitions. What are they? Well, first of all, Jesus says that you need to love your enemies. He says you need to pray for your enemies. And then the end, when he implies that if you're only kind to the people who you like and who like you, you know, everyone does that. So maybe the implication is be kind to your enemies. So praying for them, loving them, being kind to them. We might add other things, welcome them, bless them. And and this doesn't mean that you forget what they do to you. doesn't mean that you automatically trust them. But you put these things into practice. And you go, well, how long do I have to do that? You do it until it is easy and routine for you to do so. You do it so long that eventually praying for them is the normal thing for you. You do it so long that being kind to your enemy is the routine thing for you. What do we say at the beginning? Discipleship is doing what Jesus has said for us to do easily and routinely. And see, this is part of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Not in a self-righteous way where we kind of earn God's love by doing the rules, but 
as an expression of his grace in our lives. We want to be and to live and to walk in the truth that Jesus has for us. You are what you do, you do what you are. As we wrap it up, I wanna look at Jesus' prayer real quick in verse 17 of John 17. So 17, 17, bouncing around a little bit here. But Jesus prays for his disciples in this way. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your what? What's the word? Your word, audience participation, thank you very much. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart. In other words, if you're gonna follow Jesus, he wants you to be set apart. He wants you to live differently than the world. He wants you to look and act different than the world. He wants you to be separate in a compelling, winsome way from the world. Sanctify them in your truth. How is it that we understand this setting apart? We do it by understanding the truth of God. I love what uh, Don Carson in his commentary on John says. He says, in practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him without learning to live in conformity with the word he has graciously given. So again, to those of you who are new to our church, hey, to those of you who have been a part of our church for a long time, our hope is that all of us would find truth in Jesus. And not just to have it, but to walk in it, to put it in practice. So here's two points of application that you may find helpful. The first is to those of you who are relatively new to the Bible. And I understand that on a morning like this, there's probably lots of people who are relatively new to the Bible. This is a challenge to you. Number one, I'd say this, develop a habit of transformational reading. In other words, develop a habit of reading the scriptures in a way that you allow God to transform your life in the reading of those scriptures. And here's a practical way to do it. I love, uh, Stephen Bonham actually came up with this idea this week. We were talking about this. I thought this was a great idea. He said, here's a challenge. Um, we know that it takes about 21 days to form a habit. And so, uh, I guess providentially, the Gospel of John has 21 chapters in it. So if you're not anyone who reads the Bible, here's a challenge to you. Whatever day you start, whether it's tomorrow or this afternoon or you start on Wednesday, whatever day you start, for 21 days, I wanna challenge you to read the Gospel of John, one chapter a day. Probably take you 15 minutes or less a day, but read one chapter of, of John per day. And if you want, um, you can do it any Bible that you have there or an app that you have. If, if you wanna pay $5, which is very cheap, you can go to our bookstore and buy one of these Gospel of John scripture memory things. It's cool because you can write notes and stuff to the, to the side of it. But take 21 days and read through the Gospel of John, which is this beautiful portrayal of, of Jesus and the ways that he wants us to live and to understand who he is. And I'll encourage a lot of you to do that. I think that's the next step for many of you here this morning, is to take 21 days and read through the Gospel of John. You can read any, any Bible book you want, uh, but the Gospel of John is a beautiful starting place. Secondly, and this would apply to all of us, all of us, even if we follow Jesus for a long, long time. When you read the scriptures, and, and I hope that you do, 
I hope that you don't just come in here and, on Sunday and the only time you crack a Bible open is when, when I'm talking about it or someone else from a stage is talking about it. I hope that what we do here is a supplement to the main diet of you spending time in God's word each day. But every time you read the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to pray this prayer at the end. And the prayer would be like this. After you read the scriptures and you spend some time thinking about it, God, what do you want me to do and who do you want me to become through this text? In other words, it's, you know, it's interesting to read that there's this guy named Nehemiah, or it's interesting to read about Esther the queen, or it's interesting to read that there's these weird dragons in Revelation that have no idea what all that means. It's easy to read you know, that Jesus told all these parables. and you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of know that stuff, but God, what do you want me to do, and who do you want me to become as I spend time in your word? That's our hope and prayer that you would walk in the truth. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the words of life that we have in Jesus. And I pray that God, we'd be a church who takes that truth seriously, to walk in your truth, to know your truth. God, I don't know what word we would describe to reflect upon our time in your word, but God, you know a good word for it. <laughs> and I pray that you would give us that word. And maybe that's a convicting word. Maybe that's an encouraging word. But Lord, I pray that we would spend time in your truth so that we could walk in it and do easily and routinely that which you have called us to do. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.